Well, folks, can you hear me out there? All right. Glad you all are here. Good morning. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them at this point in time. Uh, If you don't, why don't you grab a pew Bible that's in the pew back in front of you. We are in the midst of our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, the King and his Kingdom. And uh, we are uh, just getting into the very beginning of uh, Jesus' maybe most well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. And this morning we find ourselves starting in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5 as we look at the disciples' Bible. The disciples' Bible. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, it is indeed um, a privilege for us to open up this word and to hear from you. Lord, to know that you have revealed yourself to us in many ways. You have shown us through creation that you are good and that you are our creator and that you are altogether powerful and holy. Father, you have shown us in the very person of your Son who you are, that we can know you because you have sent your Son, Jesus, into this world. And if that were not enough, you have preserved for us your word and even the very teachings of your Son. So, Father, this morning as we dive into them, we pray that, again, our hearts and our minds would be open to receive what you would have for us to receive. Specifically, Father, we want to believe about this Bible that we have sitting in our lap, what your Son believed about his Bible. And so help us to be faithful followers of Christ in this most significant of areas, how we think and how we treat and how we follow your revelation to us through your word, the disciples' Bible. We ask it in that name, the name of Jesus, the name above all names, and all of God's people together said, amen. Well, Dr. Albert Albert Moeller, you can see him on the screen behind me. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He does all sorts of writings, all sorts of uh, speakings, all sorts of engagements, and uh, he is... Um, I think, a a wonderful gift to the church in America. He once wrote an article uh, entitled, The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy. The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy. And I think the tagline was, it's our problem. Speaking to the church today, it is our problem. This problem of biblical illiteracy. And he writes in that article a few things, and I want to share that with you to begin with this morning. He says this, He says, researchers tell us that it's worse than most could imagine. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. According to the data from the Barna Research Group, some 60% of Americans can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, quote, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Those identified as born-again Christians did better only by 1%. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults in America believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number, he writes, of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount, which we happen to be in, the Sermon on the Mount was preached by none other than Billy Graham. And then he writes these few 
words. Friends, we are in deep trouble, is what he says. We are in deep trouble. You know, we find ourselves just about ankle deep into what is Jesus' most famous and well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We began the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11 with the disciples' blessings, right? The disciples' blessings. We saw eight attitudes and actions of true disciples, true followers of Jesus in what is often known as the Beatitudes. Having given us the actions and the attitudes of true followers of Christ, Jesus goes on in verses 12 through 15 to talk about the disciples' bearing. And we saw last week the type of impact that beatitude believers will have on their world, right? They, Jesus says, we are the, the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. So we've seen the disciples' blessings, the disciples' bearing. And this morning we come to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll look at verses 17 through 20. And in this little section, Jesus talks about the disciples' Bible. The disciples' Bible. Jesus in this section clarifies his relationship with the Old Testament. His relationship with the Bible. And by doing so, he helps us, his disciples, understand what we too should believe about the Bible. So friends, let me ask you a simple question. Should followers of Jesus believe what Jesus believed about the Bible? Yes, is the simple answer. So, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? Well, verses 17 through 20, the disciples' Bible helps us understand that more clearly. In fact, as we work our way through it, I've identified about six characteristics of the Scriptures. Six characteristics of the Bible that Jesus taught us as he helps us understand what a disciple of his should believe and act accordingly to the Scriptures. So, Six characteristics, beginning with the authority of the Bible in verse 17. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, let's take a look at it. You can see it on the screen behind me as well. We begin with the authority of the Scripture, starting in verse 17. Jesus said these words, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them but to fulfill them. Jesus begins this section, the disciples' Bible, by addressing an accusation. And it must have been an accusation that had already been flung his way. And I think you could uh, perceive and understand what that accusation was in this very first phrase. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. There was an accusation, apparently, that was already being thrown Jesus' way by the religious leaders of his day. And that accusation was simply that he was teaching a rival system to the Old Testament law, a rival system to the Mosaic law, that he was not living and teaching the law of Moses. And so here, Jesus, at the very outset of his this little section about the Scriptures, makes it abundantly clear that what he is teaching uh, is not contrary in any way to the rest of the scriptures. Jesus here is, is preparing his disciples. He's preparing the crowds for the incongruity, for, for the difference between his teachings and the leader's teachings of the law. Shortly, in verses 21 through 48, which we'll get into next week, Jesus is going to proceed to authoritatively interpret the Bible and apply the Bible for his hearers. And it's going to be vastly 
vastly different than what the religious leaders of the day had been teaching. So at the outset, Jesus wants us to know, he wants it to be abundantly clear that what he taught in no way contradicted the scriptures. Here, this little phrase, he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was a, was a Jewish way, it was a very common Jewish way of simply referring to the Bible, the Old Testament. So Jesus says, I, I didn't, I'm not teaching anything contrary here. I'm not going against God's revelation in the Old Testament. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. No. He makes it clear that he did not in any way come to leave or present something new from what God had already preserved in the Old Testament. There's a, a, a story of, of then-President Ronald Reagan, a uh, great Republican president. He was once asked why he moved away in his earlier years from the Democratic Party. And he simply repi- replied, I didn't move away from them, they moved away from me. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm not moving away from the Bible. I'm not moving away from the correct interpretation and application of the law. No, the religious leaders, they are the ones who have moved away from the scriptures. So, he says, I have not come to abolish the law. Well, then what did he come to do? What is his relationship to the Old Testament scriptures? Well, he tells us, right? He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill, right? I have come to fulfill them. So what did Jesus mean when he says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Uh, A very common interpretation is that Jesus came to live them out perfectly for us. And I think that is certainly true. Jesus obeyed the Old Testament law completely. Jesus, as the Messiah, fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. All of these things are true. But I don't think that's what Jesus means here. He's talking about his teachings. And he's talking about the teachings of the the religious leaders. This term, this idea of fulfillment, it has the idea of establishing something completely. To fulfill simply means to bring it to its fruition. To bring it to its end, the end of its purpose. So here, I think Jesus is saying, listen, my teachings, in contrast to that of the religious leaders, um, they, they give the Old Testament law their full meaning. Uh, in other words, he brings out the spirit behind them, not this, just the letter of the law. And he, he, he talks about the principles that are also behind them. And in this way, Jesus affirms the Old Testament law. He affirms the Old Testament authority. And he adds that his interpretation, uh, his authoritative interpretation brings them to completion. He says, I'm going to teach the Bible in a way that, that shows you what it really means. And he's going to do that in just a few minutes. So friends, here at the outset of his, of this section on the scriptures, verse 17, we see the authority of the Bible affirmed by Jesus. Jesus affirms the authority of the scriptures. He says, I have not come to teach contrary to it. I have come to teach it fully. So let me ask us who claim to be Christians, do we also affirm the authority of the scriptures?
There was a, a cartoon, a, a, an old cartoon, you may be familiar with it, uh, the Frank and Ernest cartoons, remember those? Um, this, there was one Frank and Ernest cartoon, and, and the two guys, Frank and Ernest, were, were standing uh, before the pearly gates of heaven. So you can imagine what that looked like. And there, St. Peter was holding the keys, as apparently he does, and holding the keys of heaven. And, and in the cartoon, he's, he's looking at Ernie specifically, and he's kind of frowning and even scowling at Ernie. And uh, in the in the cartoon, Frank then leans over to Ernie and he whispers in his ear and he says, "If I were you, I, I'd change your shirt, Ernie." And then the next scene shows Ernie's shirt, and uh, there are two words on his shirt, and the two words are "question authority." Question authority, friends. I wonder. I wonder. Is this our attitudes towards the scriptures which the God of the pearly gates wrote? Do you believe that the Bible is the authority in your life as a follower of Christ in what you think, what you believe about a whole host of issues, and then how you live your life? What about in what you believe about, say, marriage, or sexual behavior, or gender, or when life begins, or other issues that run contrary to the narrative of our culture and day? Brothers and sisters, as a follower of Jesus, you don't have the right. I don't have the right to part ways with our master's affirmation of the authority of the scriptures. If Jesus affirms the authority of the Bible, both in faith and in practice, then friends, what shall we do? Shall we as well? Of course we should. So, in verse 17, Jesus shows us the authority of the scriptures. He affirms the scriptures. In verse 18, we see three more characteristics. Three more characteristics of the scriptures from the lips of Jesus. And the first is its eternality. Its eternality. And we see that in verse 18. The very first phrase in verse 18. We'll read it in its entirety. For truly I tell you, Jesus said, until heaven and earth disappear. And focus on that for a sec. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Here at the outset of verse 18, we see the eternality of the scriptures. See, when God speaks often in, in, in the Bible about the unchangeable nature of his word, about the eternal nature of his word, he often does so by comparing it to nature. By comparing it to nature which does not change, as Jesus does here. So when Jesus says, until heaven and earth disappear. It's his way of saying, as long as the world lasts, so will the word. I was uh, talking with one of my kids the other day about heaven. I don't remember which one it was. And uh, they were asking me something like this. Well, Dad, how, how long is, is heaven? You know, how long is eternity? And I said, well, heaven and eternity are forever. It never ends. It just keeps going. On and on and on. And they simply replied, forever is a long time. And that's right. Forever is a long time. Friends, Jesus affirms the eternality of the word. I wonder if we do as well.
See, Jesus believed that God's word will never end. That is, it lasts forever. That we will enjoy it and benefit uh, from it even into eternity. That is, it never fades. The word of God never goes out of fashion. It is never irrelevant. It is never too out of date. It is never too old school. And it will never be, quote, on the wrong side of history. While we may affirm as Christians mentally the eternality of the scriptures, I wonder, I just wonder, if we have ever, if you have ever found yourself saying something about the Bible or one of its teachings that goes like this, well, that part, it's just kind of out of date. Well, that's just how people used to think about it. Well, we've kind of moved past that, or that was for a different time. Friends, fellow followers of Christ, please be careful. Please be careful. The Word of God is eternally applicable, it is eternally relevant, and it is eternally binding. Not only do we see its eternality, but as we look at the second half of verse 18, we see its inspiration. It is inspired. It is the very Word of God. Let's read verse 18 again. For truly I tell you, Jesus said, until heaven and earth disappear, notice what he says now. Not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Friends, let me ask you a question. How much of the scriptures did Jesus believe was inspired? How much of the Bible did Jesus believe was inspired, breathed out of the very mouth of God? Notice what he says. Not the smallest letter. Not the least stroke of a pen. See, here Jesus refers in this first uh, little saying, not the smallest letter. You can see the picture behind me. Jesus refers to the smallest of Hebrew letters. It's called the Yod. Right, Herb? The smallest of Hebrew letters. It's called the Yod. He says, not the smallest letter will disappear. And then he, he refers to something in Hebrew called a seraph. Here, the NIV translates it as the, the least stroke of a pen. Uh, a seraph essentially would distinguish one Hebrew letter from another uh, letter that was similarly shaped. So if you want to look at this, uh, all of these are Hebrew letters, and, and you can see how, how close and how similar the Hebrew letters are. Just a, just a stroke of a pen, right, makes one different from the next. This is what Jesus is talking about, friends. We can move on from those images. He's saying not the smallest detail did God not have his hand in. I ran across a story this week of, uh, of, of, uh, of a, a wealthy woman. And she was overseas traveling, as I guess wealthy women do, without her husband. And she was shopping, and she saw a bracelet that was uh, irresistible to her. She she had to have it. And so this was back in the days. You can you know send a you know pick up your cell phone. And so she sent a cable, a wired message to her husband, and, and the message went this way: Have found wonderful bracelet, price seventy five thousand dollars. May I buy it? question mark. Her husband promptly wired back his response. No, comma, price too high. But the cable operator omitted the comma. So the message that the woman received read this way. 
no price too high. Elated, she purchased the bracelet. See, little, little strokes of the pen, right? Just little things. They make a big difference, do they not? And that's what Jesus is affirming here. Jesus says that the inspiration of the Bible goes so far as even the minutest, smallest details. What Jesus is describing here is what, is what Bible scholars call verbal plenary inspiration. That is, the Bible is verbally inspired. God inspired through the writers every single word. Every single letter in the original writings. Every little jot. Every little tittle, right? And it's plenary. That means that all of the scriptures, every single portion of the Bible, right? Even the the genealogies that we like to skip over when we're reading the Bibles, all of it. Here, Jesus refers to it simply as the law. All of it is inspired by God. In fact, Paul says a similar thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All of it. So, fellow Christian, let me ask you about how you view the scriptures, Do you believe it to be inspired by God? Do you believe that every word, every part of the scripture is inspired? Or maybe just parts of it? Do you believe that God is its ultimate author throughout? If so, if so, we can't disregard even one word. Not even one letter. Jesus didn't do it. He didn't disregard any of it. So why should we, if we claim to follow him, do the same. I love the great uh, 19th century British pastor, Charles Spurgeon. He's a great pastor. Read some of his books. Check out his sermons. He once wrote this. He said, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe at all. He said, believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. He says, there is no logical standing place between the two. And then he gives us this admonition. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. He says, a faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best. He says, it is little better than a dry land faith. It is not good for much. See, friends, Jesus believed in the authority of the Scriptures. He believed in the eternality of the Scriptures. He believed in the inspiration of the Scriptures. But not only that, the tail end of verse 18 shows us that Jesus affirmed and believed in the accuracy, the accuracy of the Scriptures. Let's read 18 18 again in its entirety. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. Now notice this. Until everything is accomplished. Until everything is accomplished. Jesus believed that what the Bible predicted and what the Bible promised would come about. Why? Because the Bible is not only inspired, but it is what theologians call inerrant inerrant. It is dependable. It is trustworthy. And it is altogether true. See, Jesus believed in the accuracy of the scriptures. So friends, those of you who claim to be Christians and follow Christ and want to be his disciple, do you affirm the accuracy of the scriptures? If you don't, 
it may be because, as the old saying goes, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. Men reject the Bible because it contradicts them. Isn't that so true? So often we don't want to believe the authority and the eternality and the inspiration and hear the accuracy of the scriptures, not because the word of God contradicts itself. No, because it contradicts us. It's because it tells us something about ourselves or our lifestyle or about God that we simply don't like. It's not palatable to us. And so we simply reject it. If you doubt its accuracy and you attempt to erode its authority, it may simply because you just don't like what it says. And that is a bad, bad reason to reject it. Well, as we move into verse 19, we see yet another characteristic of the scriptures from Jesus. It's applicability is what I'll call it in verse 19. The applicability of the scriptures. Let's read it together. In verse 19, Therefore, Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly. Now, he's he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day. We'll talk about that in a second. Sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, number one, practices, and number two, teaches these commands will be called Great in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, if you're a Christian, let me ask you, do you want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven? Or do you want to be called least? It's a pretty simple answer for most of us. We want to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, how we handle the word of God, how we live it, and how we teach it will have something to do with that. See, Jesus believed that all of the Bible was to be taught and to be applied. He believed that all of it was to be instructed and all of it was to be lived out. See, we need to know a little bit of the context here because the the Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day had come up with a very interesting way to divide or categorize the 600 plus commandments found in the Old Testament. See, they, they said, well, there's a group... Let's just call it the greatest group. And these commandments God really cares about. He really wants us to obey. He really wants us to believe them. And he really wants us to follow them. But there's another category. Let's just call them the least category. And, well, they're just not quite as important. They're not as hefty. If we disobey them, it's not that big a deal. And so they had divided, so to speak, the law, the very word of God, into that which were least important and that which were great uh, of greater importance. Those that had more authority and those that had less authority. And here Jesus, notice what he says. He says, therefore, if anyone sets aside even the what? Even the least of these commandments. See, interestingly enough, one scholar, um, one Jewish scholar, uh, uh, commented that uh, in Jesus' day, that it was very um, common that uh, these, these rabbis would say, you know which is the least authoritative command? The least, the least important command. Well, they, they said it was found in Deuteronomy 22. And there in Deuteronomy 22, you find a prohibition against taking a, 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 a mother bird to consume her uh, from her nest while the babies and the eggs are in the nest. That 
was one of the commands. And so uh, the, the rabbi said, that's the least important command, right? If, there, if there's a totem pole, it's on the bottom. And Jesus, most scholars think that he refers to that. And he says, listen, not even the least are not important. We may scoff at such a distinction in the Old Testament law. But friends, let me just ask us for a minute to think about our own lives and our own way, our own, the way that we relate to the law today. Now, I'm speaking of the laws of, of the land here, right? The laws of the county, the laws of the country, those kind of things. While we may get all high and mighty on the, on the rabbis and say, ah, oh, I can't believe they do that, right? I can't believe they would have this distinction. Let me just ask a question. Um, most of us think that uh, committing murder, which is uh, illegal, um, is a pretty heavy law, right? That's authoritative. It's important. I hope most of you would never think about committing it, especially against your pastor. Um, you know, it's supposed to be a joke. Come on, guys. Hope, we, we, we consider murder to be heavy, right? It's important. We wouldn't break it. But do we consider things like uh, breaking the speed limit every now and then, or jaywalking in a city, or wearing our seatbelt? Do we consider those as authoritative? Friends, they're all laws, aren't they? So while it's easy for us to scoff at the religious leaders saying, well, these are more important, and these are less important. Friends, friends, we can do that with the legal law, but I wonder, can we do that with God's word as well? Can can we as Christians pick and choose which verses we like and therefore will submit to? And then will we pick and choose those that eh, maybe less authoritative, maybe not as important, maybe we simply don't like it, and so in our minds we find a way to justify disregarding it? Friends, can we do to the Bible what the rabbis did in Jesus' day? I think we can. I think we do. But Jesus didn't. See, he believed that all of the scriptures were applicable to be taught and lived. He closes this section on his relationship to the Bible and the law in verse 20. And we see the necessity. We'll call it the necessity of the scriptures. Verse 20. He saves his most pointed words for last here. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this was a theological bombshell that Jesus just laid down. Uh, if, you, if you will, for you younger folks, Jesus just, he had a microphone, he dropped it, right? This was huge in Jesus' day. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, now we need to understand, the type of righteousness that Jesus speaks of is not a legal righteousness. It's not a, a justification as God forgives us of our sins and, and, and credits us the righteousness of Jesus. This is the gospel. Jesus speaks of a practically lived out obedience. This is the type of righteousness that he's looking at. The, the way that people would live out their religion. He says, I tell you, unless the way that you live out your obedience to the scriptures, your righteousness unless it is greater than, surpasses that of the who? 
Pharisees. They were the strictest of the strict. The, in, in, in the, the Judaism of the day, the, the most moral of the moral. Right? And Jesus is saying, you need to be more moral than them if you expect to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that this type of righteousness that the religious leaders had, this selective application of the law, this selective obedience to the scriptures, he says that type of righteousness, one that is merely external, it's merely superficial, it's just on the outside, that type of righteousness, Jesus says, is indicative of an inferior and an and, and inauthentic faith towards God. And thus... And thus is not enough for kingdom entrance. Jesus is laying down a gauntlet to the religious leaders of his day. He says, for I tell you, he's making an authority claim. He says, it's not what they say. It's not what the traditions say. It's what I say. Because I am the very son of God. And I can interpret the Bible rightly. Because I had a hand in writing it. He says, and he's going to flesh out in the verses to come. This is how you interpret and live out the scriptures. But he says, friends, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness needs to be internal. It needs to be uh, genuine. And he's going to flesh that out for us. Jesus says of the Pharisees' righteousness, it's just not sufficient. So friends, we're going to close this way. I wonder if Jesus could be speaking to very religious people, not only in his day, but in our day as well. I wonder if Jesus could be describing you as he speaks of these religious but unsaved people of his day. Just like them, many people today are religious. They claim to be Christian, if you will. They have an external practice and and, and an association with Christianity. But internally... They have not truly repented of trust in self or in anything else other than Jesus. They've not turned to place their faith in him and in him alone to be righteous, to have their sins forgiven, to go to heaven. They think they're Christians, but they simply think they are because they go to church. They think they're Christians because they're members of the church or they, have, they do religious things and they think that this makes them right with God. But in their hearts, they really don't want to obey God. They simply want to use God to get what they want and to do what they do, which is what the Pharisees were doing. And so, if then this is you, Jesus speaks a very harsh but necessary word. He says, you will not He says, you you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. But there is good news. Just as Jesus spoke those words, just a few verses earlier, he spoke these words to the crowd, the very same crowd. He said, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He offers them and us an opportunity to turn from self-righteousness, to turn from trust in anything else other than him, and to place our faith in him and in him alone, to receive the free gift of eternal life, of forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation with God, and so much more. Friends, I wonder if you have done that today. I wonder if you have trusted in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And if that is the case, then friends, you will certainly enter 
the kingdom of heaven. So, what do followers of Jesus, a disciple of Christ, what should we think and how should we live out the scriptures? Jesus believed the authority of the Bible. He believed in its eternality, in its inspiration, in its accuracy, in its applicability, and in its utter necessity. So do you believe those things? Do we believe those things as followers of Christ? Jesus has thrown down the gauntlet, spiritually speaking. He has challenged the religious leaders of the day about their beliefs, about their teachings, about their application, their living out of the Bible. And by doing so, he has shown us what a disciple of his should look like and and how we should relate to the scriptures. Well, next week in verses 21 through 48, we see the disciples' beliefs. Jesus is going to select six Old Testament commands. And he's going to illustrate what he's talking about. He's going to show us a type of righteousness that will allow us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because it's based on faith. It's based on faith. He's going to give us the right meaning of it and the right application of it in contrast to the religious leaders of his day. So friends, you want to know what type of righteousness is necessary? We'll come next week. Jesus is going to flesh it out for us in great detail. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this instruction from your son about your word. Lord, help us, those of us who name the name of Christ, who want to be a faithful disciple of his, help us to think about the scriptures the way that he thinks about the scriptures, and then help us to live out the scriptures the way that he lives out the scriptures. We need your help to do this. Spirit, come into our hearts and lives who know Christ and help us to have the righteousness that is necessary. Father, we know that you offer us a type of righteousness that is solely based upon your Son, that allows us to be credited to our spiritual account with the perfect life and obedience of your Son. And not only that, but that takes from our account all of our sins and nails them to the cross and covers them forever. And we are grateful for that. But it must be received. And so I pray if there's a man or a woman or a boy or a girl here today and they have not received this salvation, this relationship with God, this eternal life through trust in Christ and in Christ alone, may they do so even now, turning to him, clinging to him. And then as they are converted and changed and have been born again, may they then, along with those of us who have had this conversion, salvation happen to us, then may we have a practical righteousness that lives out your word according to your will. We ask it in the name of Jesus and together God's people said, amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. One quick note, we're taking the missionaries out to lunch. If you want to join us, join us uptown at the restaurant. Thanks.